0: Bolton, of course, is a very interesting amalgam.
1: Is that how you say that word? Amalgam?
0: Amalgam? Maybe it is amalgam. I like amalgam.
1: Amalgam sounds fancy. I always thought it was an amalgam, but I don't think I've ever said the word out loud because I'm not quite sure.
0: (laughs) Somebody is because I'm not a pretentious asshole, Mark. Now that I hear it, it's probably amalgam. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined, as ever, by my fellow hosts, they are... Tablet Deputy Editor, Stephanie Butnik. Hello. And the Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. And this week, we bring you a conversation with Zibby Owens. She's the host of the Moms Don't Have Time to Read books podcast. And she's talking about her new quarantine anthology. It was only a matter of time before the core anthologies came out, and this is one of the first. We also spoke with David Beispiel. It was a while ago, but we're running it now. It's about his memoir, A Place of Exodus, Home, Memory, and Texas. That's right. Texas. So, so much good stuff going on. We're going to have an update on the Jewish name of the year competition. Before we get to all of that great stuff, Stephanie Butnick, how are you?
1: I'm good. I want to tell you something that I did recently. So a big issue in my marriage is the fact that I have not read The Great Gatsby. I mean, if you look at it on a map, West Egg is Great Neck, where I grew up, and East Egg is Manhasset Bay. And in the book, the two represent like nouveau riche versus waspy old money in the early 20th century. And Ben is like, "Why haven't you read this book? You're literally from West Egg, <laughs> didn't you read it in high school? Maybe I don't really remember. I know there's the, the guy with the glasses. There's the there's Daisy.
0: The guy with the glasses.
1: Yeah, on the, the guy with the glasses. You know the guy on the thing on the. You see his face with the glasses. Okay. What? You haven't read Gatsby? Um,
0: no, I've read Gatsby like four times. I just did. I don't remember the guy with the glasses, but okay.
1: Apparently, the copyright on the book came up recently, and it ended. So Planet Money did this incredible thing where they were like. So this is what it means when you no longer have a copyright. You can do anything with the book. So they spent the next five hours of an episode reading *The Great Gatsby*. They created their own audiobook where their various Planet Money hosts were reading the different chapters. And I was like, "Great! It's a podcast. I can read *The Great Gatsby*. This is wonderful." (laughs) So we spent a wonderful, some wonderful five hours last week listening to *The Great Gatsby*. It's like when I finally watched *Casablanca*, and I was like, "Oh, this is where all those phrases come from." Like of all the gin joints, like. (laughs) So now I understand those things.
0: Oh, Meyer Wolfsheim with his cufflinks made of human molars. That's where he came from. So
1: that's what I want to talk about.
0: Bad for the Jews.
1: Bad for the Jews. That that F. Scott Fitzgerald did not really love the Jews. Meyer Wolfsheim is like Shylock incarnate. Yeah. There's also a woman who says like, oh, I almost married this little Jew once. And you were just like, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about this?
0: It's one of the great examples in literature of, you know, a book with some bad Jewish politics that I just don't care that much about because it's a great work of literature and a lot of Gentiles in East Egg had bad Jewish politics 100 years ago.
1: Which is ironic because West Egg or Great Neck is now home to this massive and thriving Jewish community with a big Iranian Jewish population. So so jokes on you, Fitzgerald.
0: And also, I mean, there's a big theory out there. I don't know if there's any proof for it, but a lot of people want to say that Jay Gatts, is, is Jewish, that he's this Jew who came to- I hold very strongly by that theory.
1: You think? I didn't even know that.
2: Yes, absolutely. Just wishful thinking or- or This is a book about a Jew named Yaakov Gotsman, you know, who came <laughs> and, and had his cousin Wolfsheim, who's not the best in the family. They were hanging together, and and he made it almost to the finish line. If it weren't for those pesky wasps.
1: Well, anyway, I just feel like I finally imbibed this classic work of literature, and it's bad for the it's bad for the Jews.
0: I like the idea too that you brought up a stupid, somewhat petty issue in your marriage, like Ben judging you for not having read The Great Gatsby.
1: By the way, I think that was in my vows that at some point I would read The Great Gatsby.
0: You would read The Gatsby. I mean, Sid judges me. You, you the amount of books I haven't read that Sid thinks are important. Or a cultivated person who have read is really, really deep. And what's so Sid's take on me is basically, how is it that you're a writer who hasn't read anything? And similarly, insofar as every story I tell, I somehow improve on or exaggerate or, or mistell it in ways that make me look better or wittier
1: or... What's the point of storytelling if not? Right, but her point is, she said, but your job is
0: actually to tell true stuff. Like you're a nonfiction journalist. Your job is to avoid exaggerating anything at all. And every story I hear you tell, you get wrong. So basically, she thinks my whole existence is fraudulent. <laughs> Leo, what does Lisa hold against you in that vein? Anything? Yes. One very big thing.
2: And this is a very good opportunity to talk about it because my wife is a fanatical fan of the game of floor hockey, I guess ice hockey, ice hockey.
1: Wait, this whole time where you've been hating on hockey, you're you live in a home a hockey home.
2: I live in a hockey home or or what was a was a fraught, tense, broken uh, home, a home filled with with <laughs> a issues divided and, and problems. A house divided cannot stand. And for all these years of I'd like to think pretty successful marriage, I would hear none of it. I would say these are the red lines that we shall not cross, like Stephanie and her Gatsby. I have I have me and my hockey. Only it was a green line. Well, it was a red line and then two blue lines as as I now know very well from watching a lot of hockey. So guys, this is, this is a very good opportunity for some reflections and a big reveal at the end of it. So as listeners of the show and you, my friends, would know, I uh, might have said some things about the game of hockey. That's a pastime for drunk bears in the woods. That were maybe not so charitable and in return received several hundred letters from the J crew telling me that I should reconsider. And of course, me being the kind of extreme total immersion type of jerk that I am. I said, okay, well, we're going full in. We're we're buying the NHL app. We're watching two, three games a day. We're reading, we're writing, we're thinking our way into hockey. I, I once had a conversation with a Chabad rabbi and I asked, are there ever any people who you absolutely know are going to be the people who in four months are going to be put in to fill in every day and like totally into it? And he said, yeah, the ones who give me the most shit going in, the people who are saying, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be into any of this crap that you have for us. Like, obviously, these are the religious folk. The
1: doth protest too muchers.
2: Right. Looking for a way back home. So obviously, the uh, doth protest too muchers. <laughs> <laughs> to the surprise of no one except for me, this is what happened to me. I am here happy to report. Uh, and Josh is smiling a big smile because he's been sending me daily text saying, see, <laughs> I'm like madly in love with this game. I am completely obsessed with it. I love not only the obvious things, like, you know, the immense skill that it takes to basically be balanced on a razor's edge at great speeds and the fact that it's kind of a cool sport. Like, to think that, you know, everyone in America knows the name Tom Brady, but, like, ask them, okay, who's the most famous, successful player in the NHL? Like, The, just only, out of curiosity. Okay, the only
1: NHL players are the ones that, like, married Carrie Underwood and Hillary Duff.
2: Right. Who is the top paid...
1: Wayne Gretzky.
0: No, playing right now. Mario Lemieux. Bobby Orr. <laughs> who you only know from crosswords. Yeah, that's a crossword guy. <laughs> oh, yes, <sir. laughs> no, I know him from growing up in New England. He was all, he did ads for local car dealerships all the time.
1: Who was the guy that was like an island? Oh, Mark Messier. Is he right. Mark Messier. So, so, that was like when I was growing up.
0: Grant Fuhr, the famous black NHL, Grant Fuhr, right? He was a black goalie. So for those of you who haven't updated their cultural references in
2: about 15 <laughs> years, the answer is Connor McDavid of the Ed, Edmonton Oilers, <laughs> uh, which she is a name that you would know. And it's so cool to me that, that you would know, but... Beyond this, look, there's kind of this metaphysical stuff, which as a religious-ish Jew enchant me. The chaos, you know, the sense that you're struggling to make sense of this world that is governed by hostile and unknowable forces. And you have to make decisions so quickly that they're not really decisions, but reflections of your inner self and instincts. And then again, at the risk of being hokey. Hockey. About hockey. uh, the, The idea that, you know, no matter how good you are, you're always part of a line, literally. You're working in a shift with two other guys. And that's a community. You can't do this on your own. Uh, I'm in love, is what I'm saying.
1: Wait, Leo, this is ridiculous. You have been like trash-talking hockey for a, a full year at this point. I don't
2: even know the rules, but I fucking love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize to the entire world.
1: You spend one week. Watching hockey, and you are like the zealous convert. It's it's amazing.
0: That's true. Is it shocking to you that Liel Libowitz when all <laughs> in on something? When... When he changes his mind, he goes all in on it.
1: He does not do moderation, that guy.
0: No. And I I admit my mistake and I I invite ridicule. I deserve it.
1: And you're welcome
0: because I love it. But that leaves us with a big question. Yes. With what team our listeners have been writing in, pleading the case for their team? So look, we received amazing letters.
2: And what I loved about reading these letters, first of all, that they suggested literally every team in the league, except for Boston, because... People who listen to the show know better than to suggest that I will follow at Boston. That, this is one conversion never happening. Like that is completely beneath contempt, right? What I love most about it is it's, it's like a mini Talmud. It's like every listener had their own shita, had their own like way of approaching the question. So some said, <laughs> look, we'll go all world historical because the Jews are like the OGs of the world. You should go with one of the original six teams of hockey that, you know, represents more or less the, the Jewish relation. For example, Stephanie Brown wrote, if Liel wants a team to root for, I strongly suggest the Montreal Canadiens, which she wrote rhymes with comedian. They're one of the original six and are the longest continuously operating professional ice hockey team worldwide. You know, kind of like the Jews which is incredible. Some of our listeners went really dark and figured out that since life was more about who you hate than about who you love, (laughs) you should pick team that have a a particular course of of hatred. And of course, literally everyone said, oh, you should root for so-and-so and so because we really hate the Boston Bruins, which again, thank you, you really do know me. Someone full tribal and said, you know, you should really root for teams that have a lot of Jews. Raya Gadaro, for example, wrote, my son's both avid hockey fans. Tell me there are four Jewish players in the NHL. The most famous is Zach Hyman, who plays for Toronto. He is a mensch. He has written three children's books and frequently visits the hospital for sick children and reads to the patients. He also represented Canada in the 2013 Maccabiah Games, where he won gold medal. Margaret Weinberg wrote that I should root for either the Jersey Devils or the Vancouver Canucks because both have or had important Jewish players who also happen to be my cousins. She writes Jack Hughes, who plays for the Devils, was the first Jewish number one pick in the NHL draft. Jack Hughes? Jack Hughes. J'accuse,
0: Emile, <laughs> Z- Emile Zola's
2: J'accuse
1: plays for the Devils. I support this. I come from a Devils family on the New Jersey side of the Butniks.
2: <laughs> Producer Josh Cross is shaking his hand, head furiously. And J'accuse's brother Quinn, who plays for the Canucks, was drafted at number seven the year before him. Natalie Louise Shribman said that the team to beat, the team to follow, the team to endorse would be the Pittsburgh Penguins, who have all kinds of players like Jason Zucker, who did not have a bar mitzvah, in order not to miss
0: hockey practice, but to celebrate Hanukkah. The,
1: the reverse Kofax. Right. Right. It's celebra-
0: so <laughs> great. That's Rabbi Natalie louis Stribman to you, by the way. I stand at all
2: of a rabbinic wisdom and knowledge. Uh, the unimprovably named Greg Herring wrote to suggest that I follow not so much the fan, but the surrounding Jewish atmosphere of the city. He suggested. The Washington Capitals, which have a radio broadcaster named Elliot Siegel, who is very Jewish and apparently very lovely. And really, the suggestions went on and on and on and on. But I want to, um, I want to reveal now my choices. Josh, drum, drum roll, please. Uh, I feel like LeBron, like, I'll be taking my fandom, too. <laughs> I have chosen the Philadelphia Flyers. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman who is very much from Philadelphia with everything that that means. And so the notion of rooting for Philly was enmeshed in me. But here are two letters that really push things forward. Scott Goldstein wrote, despite being the greatest franchise in sports, the Flyers have not won the Stanley Cup trophy in 40 years. Four decades spent wandering, seeking a promised land? Sounds pretty Jewish to me. We also hate Boston. That is great. And he writes, like the Jews, everyone hates us for no reason. So come join in the Flyer fan base. And uh, Matilda Sheeran, who is in a mixed marriage with husband Matt, who roots for Chicago, says, let's face it. The man is married to a Philadelphia sports fan. And for the sake of marital harmony alone, he must root for the Philadelphia Flyers. And she says, by the way, there's only one NHL mascot with questioning eyes, a full belly and a Talmudic beard. We
0: call him Gritty. Gritty. By the way, Philadelphia has the most ridiculous, you know, the Phillies mascot, the Philly oh, the fanatic. fanatic. <laughs> just like Philadelphia has the dumbest mascots. By which I mean the most awesome.
1: I have not read like the exposition that Gritty is Jewish. I like that a lot. That's the one think piece on Gritty we haven't seen.
2: Here's also one one major connection. You know, if you know anything about the Philadelphia Flyers, and I, I know enough or knew enough even when I hated hockey about this, you, you know the Broad Street Bullies. You mean last week? Now, even before that. Again, because I live with, with Lisa. You know about the Broad Street Bullies. You know about this iconic team from the 70s. And if you don't hear their story, they were a new team to the league. And then people started beating on them, physically beating on them. And their owner, Ed Snyder, a good Jew, said two famous words, never again. And he went out there and got a bunch of really tough bruisers who knew how to fight just as well as they knew how to play hockey and went up and, you know, really showed the league what proud people standing on their own two feet look like. It's like a real Maccabean feat. You know, they won the Stanley Cup two years in a row, showing the world that you just don't mess with Philly. And so it gives me great pleasure to announce and I will put up a photo with the jersey later on because of course I already bought a jersey for like $200. (laughs) I am now an obsessive Philadelphia Flyers
1: fan. Wow. So this just ended with you liking your wife's team. Correct. After like years of being an asshole about it.
2: (laughs) That's correct. And don't think that Lisa did not comment on this at great length. But it's also the right choice. It's the violent, questionable, despised. When you
0: know, you just know.
2: You just know.
0: news of the Jews News of the Jews, a few quick hits before we dive deep on any of these. First of all, news of the Mark Oppenheimer. Friendly's restaurants has been rescued from bankruptcy. You'll be happy to know that the chain has finalized its sale after filing for bankruptcy in November. The Wilbraham, Massachusetts-based chain, that is to say Springfield, Massachusetts-based chain, known for its ice cream Sundays, and I would add jigs, has been sold to Amici Partners Group in Connecticut. Amici says it will introduce new ice cream flavors and other new menu items at Friendly's locations. This is a really stupid idea. Whatever you do, don't introduce new ice cream flavors. Just bring back the butter crunch, which has been missing from several Friendly's locations for a while now. Also, recreate the delineation between the milkshake and the fribble. They've, for some time now, been treating the fribble as the milkshake. If you want a milkshake, you order a fribble. The fribble was originally the extra, extra, extra thick milkshake. It was basically just ice cream with a little splash of milk in it. If you want to return to your glory years, just return to your glory years. Don't market test anything. Don't mess with perfection, baby. Just Seek it and live in it. Can I
2: join you in this impassioned plea that beloved fast food chains return to traditionalism? <laughs> because there's really few things that irk me more that when places like this try to be like, oh, you know, it'd be cool if you could get a salted caramel ice cream. here? like, that's not no, why I no. come, to McDonald's.
1: A beyond majig. Definitely.
0: <laughs> Definitely not. I, I want friendlies to be orthodox. Exactly. Old school, orthodox friendlies. Also in news of the Jews, Jewish Telegraphic Agency Doing What It Does Best had an article listing just all the Jews that Joe Biden has tapped for top administration roles. Janet Yellen, the new secretary of the Treasury, a Jew, Ronald Klein, Anthony Blinken, Avril Haines, The mustachioed Eric Lander, the science advisor, Merrick Garland back in the public eye, who is a total doppelganger for my Uncle Dave, for Uncle Dave Schreiber. No two humans look more alike who are not identical twins than Merrick Garland and Dave Schreiber. So welcome back to the public eye, Uncle Dave Schreiber.
1: I'm really happy for your family. I have to say, I love these JTA articles because you're like, who's going to send them to you? Your Uncle Myron or an (laughs) anti-Semite? Like it literally serves two groups of people, people who love Jew spotting and people who hate Jews.
2: Although I will say on the topic of spotting Jews out in the wild, the Forward this week gets itself in in a little bit of hot water after it named second. What do we call Ella Emhoff? Second daughter. She's the second stepdaughter. The second stepdaughter to its list of the 50 most influential Jews in America, at which point Ella wrote the paper via a spokesperson saying, thank you so much
0: but I'm not Jewish. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with my daughter, Rebecca, about this. I mean, obviously she's, her dad's Jewish. I'm assuming her mom isn't. And the forward, long legacy Jewish newspaper going back a hundred years to the Lower East Side Yiddish edition wants to make you one of its Jews of the of the century or whatever. Just say yes. Rebecca said to me, well, she doesn't feel Jewish. She doesn't consider herself Jewish. I said, yeah, but if the people want to claim her and it would make a lot of Jews feel good that this woman of Jewish ancestry has this great Insta account, and her stepmom is vice president. Just roll with it. Am I
1: crazy there? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. She didn't object to being on the list. They reached out and said, we're doing these, something called a versation, Like, they're basically doing an event with each well, of the I object like, the to 50. any Zoomversation. Yes, yeah, of right. course. It's offensive. But, um... It's different to be, like, named to a list. And then it, I think the question was, will you participate in this thing celebrating you being named to this list? I think that's a very—she's allowed to say no to that. And and I
2: kind of like that she did. I mean, she said, look, I, I don't want to stand in for something that I don't feel like I'm, you all know, right. really representing. Like,
1: good on her. It is so funny, though, because didn't we play the clip of Kamala doing the impression of her her in-laws who are just, like, so, so, so Jewish. And so I guess, you know, look, I think we all made a, a series of leaps. Douglas Emhoff, we can still claim as Jewish, but I guess that's the problem with lists, with listing the Jews in the cabinet. I mean, you never know how someone personally identifies.
2: This is the problem of having a list of Jews.
1: We don't (laughs) want any list. Don't ever put me on a list of Jews. Look,
0: as we're creating our list of top Jewish names, I gotta say, I'm looking at this list. Like, I hope that Tequila Minsky is Jewish, but I don't know that she's Jewish. Minsky, pretty Jewish. Would a nice Jewish parent really name their daughter Tequila? I mean, I'm wondering, I'm thinking maybe not a Jew. You're right. These are problematic. I guess I will back down.
1: But we're not naming Jews. We're naming Jewish names. That's different.
0: That's a good point. Tequila Minsky, Jewish name.
2: I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt the flow of things, but I literally just received an email in my inbox. I think that the subject line will really delight you. The subject line is El Al, of course, Israel's national airline. El Al, remember the Holocaust. <laughs> It's like, I'll forget.
1: I'll always remember.
2: No, apparently they landed a plane in Berlin bearing the words we remember on the plane, which is kind no. of a passive aggressive move.
1: I think that's like way more than passive aggressive.
2: Like, hey, German, we haven't forgotten.
1: So my favorite bit of political news comes from former Democratic presidential hopeful now New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang. He, I guess, is trying to reach out to the Jewish community and has gotten in some, I guess, hot water. I actually hadn't heard of either of these things, which means I'm not paying attention to the Jewish beat as much as I should be. But something about BDS, something about circumcision. So he he pens this op-ed, which is a word I, I do not like. He writes this op-ed for the Forward to sort of clarify his stance on both of these things. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about his stances on either of those things. I want to read one sentence to you. He basically, well, two, but it's one word that I'm really concerned with, and I want the J Crew to help me parse this. He says, I will not get in the way of anyone's right to circumcise their child and maintain the traditions of their faith. I have and always will attend Friends Brasim to celebrate this important religious milestone in the life of their new children. What is the word Brasim? I've asked a lot of people, that is not a Hebrew. P- what plural is that?
2: Uh, the wrong one, the masculine instead of the feminine. It should be britot.
0: Right. Well, in Hebrew, in Hebrew would be britot and in Yiddish would be brises. So he, he as a Hebrew-Yiddish mashup. Also failing the test of has anyone ever heard this fucking word used in outside of captivity? Nobody has ever said Brasim in history.
1: But he has Jews working on his staff, for sure. I'm in a text thread wondering which person is responsible for that word. That's
2: exactly right. The person who gave him that word is a person who, who has a far too inflated sense of their own kind of educational knowledge and background and no actual real Jewish education to know this stuff. They probably thought that they were being smart because, oh, the I am is the correct Hebrew. Hebrew plural, not actually knowing enough to know that that's not
1: The true. Bris is a Yiddish word. So you, so you put the Hebrew plural on a Yiddish word. it's amazing. And also, I love that the forward just left it
0: right. That's what I was going to say. is like I love it. somebody at the forward didn't tell him Andrew yang, brisim is not is not is not a it doesn't exist if that is not a plural of Bris. The, the, that said, I've always kind of had a soft spot for Andrew Yang. And I kind of hope he ends. I don't know who else is running, and it's not my city. Oh, I,
2: I'm a huge fan. I really
1: you're
2: in the Yang gang? Oh, a thousand percent. I, I really wish he would. You're in the Yang gang game In the Yang game gang <laughs> <laughs>
1: guest today is Zivy Owens. She's the creator and host of the extremely popular podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, and she's the editor of the new quarantine anthology Moms Don't Have Time To, because if we've learned anything during quarantine during the pandemic is that moms do not have time to. Zivi, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm so excited to be here. So let's talk
1: about like the beginning of 2020. Could you describe what your life was like? Just like book salons, running book fairs, podcast interviews, talking about books on Good Morning America, like give us a sense of just like this literary infused life that you were leading.
3: Pre-COVID life was, I was doing my podcast interviews, but I had all the authors, most of the authors come here right where I'm sitting and I would do them in person, which was great. We'd have like a cup of coffee and then we'd have like a great podcast. I was doing events in my home probably every three weeks where I would get about 40 women, some men, and I would lead a conversation with one or two authors around a topic that I thought they'd both find interesting. I was doing a lot of bookstore events where I would go moderate someone who else who was having a book lunch. I had book fairs every six months and I had one I think in December where I would sell all the books from the previous six months of the podcast. And I was doing some freelance writing, and I have four kids, and i that's always what I'm doing. Those were some of my things. And so then the pandemic hits, and books don't actually stop being published.
1: I mean, how do you sort of pivot? Because you are such, what did New York Magazine called you, like the bookfluencer of New York City? I mean, you're, you have this really public perch of being a place where people come to for recommendations. How do you sort of pivot then when, you, first of all, you can't have people in your home, but... How do you start try to help authors who suddenly have no book tours anymore?
3: So the minute that the pandemic hit, once I like got my kids settled and you know we were all like good to go for remote schooling and everything else, I was just like, okay, what can I do? How can I help? I have to help all these authors whose book tours are going to be canceled and their pub dates are going to come and go. And normally I would have been like rushing off to a seven o'clock pub night event at some local bookstore and instead nothing. So yeah, I just sat at my computer and I was like, well, first I'm going to make a bookshop.org storefront and I'm going to pick all the books for the next couple months that I think people should know about. And then I thought, well, I'm going to just start having to interview a lot more people. Usually I interview on my podcast, moms don't have time to read books. I pick books that I would pick up in a bookstore or that look really good to me or that have something that makes me really want to read them. And then that's really my criteria. Lots of different voices, different formats, but things that are of interest to me. And I only had five a week. So, you know, 20 some odd podcasts a month. And that was not going to be enough. So I started a daily Instagram. By the way,
1: five podcasts a week is a lot like to begin with, right? Like you're already.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of reading, um, a lot of prep, but I love it. Most weeks I do like seven or eight podcasts because I don't know. I just, I have a hard time saying no. And all these books look so good. So I started an Instagram live show and I was doing four a day, but only for like 10 or 15 minutes. I was open and I was like, I can't even attempt to read all these books, but I will flip through them and I will research you and I just want to give you the platform. So I did that for several months and that was really fun. And I kept up the podcast and I also launched this online magazine of sorts called We Found Time, which originally was going to be this big website with a big launch and that did not happen. And I was like, I'm going to have all these essays written by authors who have been on my podcast and I'm just going to release them. And that's what I did. And then those essays eventually became the book that you mentioned.
1: That's amazing. You, I don't know how you have time to do all of this, but, you know, something that you shared was, was sort of your own personal story. You know, it wasn't all just book talks for you and Instagram Lives and all this stuff while you were working to help all these other people. I mean, there was really traumatic effects on your own family from COVID, right?
3: Yes. My husband first lost his grandmother who was older, but she gave COVID to his mother who was 63 and super healthy, actually recently divorced. And had just like started dating this guy who drove a motorcycle. And she was like off on a new life adventure and was brimming with spirit and optimism and all this stuff. And COVID, she caught it from her mom who she had been taking care of. And for six weeks, she was in the hospital. Halfway through, we had her uh, hella medevaced to a different Hospital in the region. It was awful. It was just every three hours talking to doctors for six weeks, like ups and downs. And I know I'm not alone in this. Everyone seemingly has someone they love who's gone through it, but it's awful. It was really really traumatic, especially for my husband and his sister Stephanie. So I was like along for the ride.
1: And so all of the proceeds from Moms Don't Have Time To, which is the quarantine anthology, goes towards COVID vaccine research, right?
3: Correct. I started a foundation of sorts at Mount Sinai Medical Center called the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 vaccine research. And all proceeds go there.
1: So you know, it's really, really interesting reading this book. It features, as you said, all these authors who have appeared on your show, people who you're excited to read anything by and these these sort of short snippets from them are great. There are a few people from a North who I was really excited to see, Beth Rick and Nadi, who um, came on our show and talked about the healing power of Paula, and of course, Lauren Meckling, Danny Shapiro. I mean, I was really excited to see those names. These essays really reflect the time that we're in. And so I'm wondering, you know you were going through this completely intense trauma of what your family was going through. I mean, how did you notice that changing sort of what these writers were focusing on and how it's very raw, all these these essays?
3: My own experience was just mirrored in a lot of the essays and everybody's emotions were, were right up close and personal during this time. And I think that was one of the windows into these authors' lives that I found most sort of interesting to peek through is that all the bravado, all the charade that was ever there for anyone was gone, stripped aside. And all that was left was like us connecting as people and being open and honest. And that was great. And I got amazing essays as a result, but more than that were the connections and relationships that came out of it, whether it was an author being just so candid about their own struggles in any way, or just someone on Instagram also going through having a sick loved one or something. I just feel like, I don't know if you feel the same way, Stephanie, it just that everybody
1: just really opened up. No, I think it's true. I mean, even on this show, we we brought the show into our homes, right? We used to do this in a studio. We've For four years on the show, I've been oversharing. But, you know, it really got to another level because people want to know and you want to connect with people. I think that's, that's really true. And I, I'm really moved because you seem to do all of this, you know, for the love of books. But I imagine you were really offering a lifeline to a lot of these authors, not only the first time, you know, debut novelist whose book came out, what, like April, whatever, or, you know, like in the middle of all of this, but really these writers who you said, give me 2,000 words or something like that on how you're feeling right now. I mean, I imagine you sort of left it pretty open-ended. Did you? Like, how did you assign these pieces?
3: As long as they were in one of the five categories, which were moms don't have time to eat, read, have sex, breathe, and work out. So it was inspired by those topics. Not a story about the fact that they didn't have time to do it, but anything related to those topics in general. And then they would just write from there. Yes, it's true. It was a bit of a lifeline. I had a lot of authors say, you know what? I never would have sat down to write this. A lot of people I had been interviewing at that time who were authors who had books, that are like, I can't even think about writing. I can't even think about reading right now. I'm a mess. And even looking back at that time, I'm just like, how did anybody produce any content, let alone amazing content? right? It was so hard to focus. There was so much uncertainty. And I found though that the essays that came out of it and even my Instagram live conversations that came out of it, they were just much more intimate. You know, I had this one conversation with Stephanie Dandler at the very beginning of quarantine and like, she was still stuck in Hawaii. And I was like at home having just started the show and we were both shell-shocked and we didn't know each other before then. But having had half an hour to chat during that time... It's like going through, I don't know, something terrible together is just you're bonded forever after that.
1: Well, it's interesting because it's like these authors now seem so much more like people when you read these really personal things, particularly like writers of fiction who you don't necessarily know so well. That's
3: why I love doing my show. I mean, I've been a huge fan of authors forever and I love books. And the idea that I got to just like ask authors anything I wanted about them, like I can ask about the books and I do, but it's much more about, well, who are you and how did you, why are you writing this? And what secrets are you keeping? (laughs) You know, all that great stuff. So, and I think that when people get to know the authors more, then they're more likely to books. They're more likely to get a whole new level of meaning from their books and recommend them more and buy them more. And so I think it's like a whole cycle.
1: And I really love the first essay by Esther Amini, who's a Persian Jewish writer and her memoir, Concealed, was wonderful and came out this spring. And she writes about what she imagines her parents would make of the lockdown world. And they were from Iran. They're from the city of Mashhad and they were crypto Jews, basically. They hid their Jewish identity and she actually covered herself in the manner of the local custom. And that to me was just really, really moving. This idea of like, oh yes, people who actually had to hide their identity, what would they make? And and just sort of the psychological impacts that had on them once they came to the United States. You also have Tiffany Schlain, who's sort of the like tech Shabbat pioneer. And I thought that was really, really interesting because I feel like so many people during lockdown really embrace this idea of Shabbat, even if you never did it before. It's just like a day that is different. Yes. Or a day that has a a name that you know, you know, like that you sort of rest. Of course, I read this book like Skimming to Find the Jewish Stuff because that's what happens when you host a Jewish podcast. But I do like the one where you— Go to work out, and then your daughter like is looking for her Hebrew school homework.
3: <laughs> for sure, yes, I have twins who are thirteen, and they both <gasps> have had their bar. They've had their bar and bat mitzvah separately, both during COVID, both over Zoom. Wow, how was that? I mean, the first one was there was a little more fanfare because it was so original, right? Bar mitzvah Zoom, and like everyone in my family came out, and then the second one's like, okay, we're back again, you know. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> Everyone's like in the same outfits. <laughs>
3: so, yeah, we we changed a little. We mixed up the seating on our couch slightly, but it's crazy. I mean, I have to say it actually focused more on the meaning. There were no, none of the trappings of like a party or stressing out about like a table setting or, you know, place cards. There was nothing. It was the meaning behind it. It was family members making really like heart to heart speeches and communing together and remembering what was important to be about it in a community. And then I could use all the money that I saved not having parties to like upgrade my wifi and <laughs> keep doing podcasts and everything.
1: And so that all your kids could be in remote school at once.
3: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely been interesting. And I have to say the Jewish faith and I have always, you know, I'm Jewish and it's always been important to me, but during the pandemic more than ever, especially when Susan was sick, every Friday we would do remote Shabbat services and they would say her name is in the prayer for healing. And and it mattered. And the rabbis, I belong to two congregations, would both check on me during the week and say prayers and then eventually let, you know, a funeral service. And it's just, it really mattered. Like some things, you know, grow in importance during the quarantine, I found, and some shrink. And my Jewishness and the community behind it became even more of a support to me then and and now.
1: I think what you said about like the idea of a pared down bar bat mitzvah where you actually realize what is important, that is so profound. And I, I keep wondering, you know. This idea that everything became, I think, more meaningful because it became so much more accessible, right? Like you didn't need to do the fancy party, you didn't need to have the whole school there. I mean, I'm sure your kids would have liked that, but I imagine there's just a lot to be learned from this idea of like paring down these these rituals. And what it is about is people being there for you when you need them, and you needed them this this summer.
3: And I think it'll be just really memorable. I mean, I saw I went on Instagram. I saw a picture of you at your bar mitzvah with the tiara. Or oh my God! Yes. <laughs> The greatest Uh, night of my life. Yes, I'm sure, as so many of us. I'll never be that cool again. I know. I had like cardboard cutouts of myself, like (laughs) it's like an MTV diva or something. It was ridiculous. (laughs) So I have those fond memories, but it wasn't as Jewish centered. I don't reflect back and think, wow, that's, you know, my parents made me like give a whole speech and stuff. And I do remember that. But this one was about sitting with my kids and really working on their speeches and quarantine because what else are we going to do and practicing and I don't know. It was just very different, but it was great.
1: So I have to ask you, as sort of the the keeper of the book, I mean, could you give us some recommendations? Is that such an annoying question? Does everyone ask you that? Like, what are some books you're really loving right now? our listeners would love?
3: Well, I just interviewed Alan Silverberg. He is like the definition of a mensch. And he wrote Meet the Latkes. Oh, the Latkes. Yeah. (laughs) He has Meet the Matzah coming out. (laughs) And he also wrote this really poignant middle grade story about a character who loses his mother, but it's actually really funny and won a humor award. So I just interviewed him recently on the Jewish theme, I would say. I mean, there are a million books. I just this morning interviewed Georgina Lawton wrote a book called Raceless about being raised by white parents, but actually she was half black and didn't realize. And her parents like ignored that fact her entire childhood. And she's finally like, "Uh, guys, you know, (laughs) but it's also about losing her father. That was a really great memoir. I love memoirs. So what about you? What type of books do you like?
1: That is a good question. I'm reading the new Nicole Krauss short stories. Yes, I read that. Those were great. And I'm about to start this new book called The Lost Shtetl by Max Gross. which I'm excited about. I read that. It's hard for me because I feel like I read a lot of Jewish books for this show. And then I also like read Agatha Christie on the side. (laughs) Like a little anti-Semitism, like just to, you know, take the edge off.
3: I was actually, I was a judge for the Jewish Book Council Book Awards this year. So I got to read like a ton of great stuff.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. So do your kids love reading? Do they have any recommendations?
3: There's a lot of graphic novels that happen in this house that people love to read. We're reading the new Clifford the Big Red Dog is going to be a movie. And now there's a new graphic novel based on the movie, slightly geared towards older kids, which they are now passing back and forth and love. My older daughter is reading one of these like YouTube sensation stars books on like how to wash your face or something like that. And Meet the Latkes. Meet the Latkes is honestly one of my kids' favorites. We read that a lot, even not in Hanukkah time. I love that.
1: Well, Zippy Owens, thank you so much for giving us some of your precious time. The book is Moms Don't Have Time To and the podcast is Moms Don't Have Time To Read. And it's just a treat to talk to you. It's a treat to talk to you, too.
3: Tell me, tell me in the
0: day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. So much good mail this week. Some people still weighing in on Jewish names, and we will be taking your suggestions uh, for one more week. Somebody writes, Dear Unorthodox, I've always been fascinated by the diversity of Jewish names. Learning the history of a name opens a small window. For Ashkenazi names, my go to books are those by Alexander Biter. I checked in my Biter and I discovered that a buttneck is a bootmaker.
1: Yeah, I had never heard that.
0: That Leibowitz is son of Leib, based on the Yiddish version of Judah. Mm-hmm. And Oppenheimer confirms what you already know from the town of Oppenheim. Meanwhile, Ader, as in Sarah Fredman Ader, multiple possible derivations, most likely related to the month of Adar. And cross with a K, multiple possible derivations depending on what the original name was in Europe.
1: What about Scaramuccia?
0: Ah, uh, it means little clown.
1: <laughs> and what small town in Poland is your family from?
0: <laughs> I thought the derivation was Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Regards, Eldad Ganon. Thank you, Eldad. Hey, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. As a longtime listener, I was delighted to hear my shout out in real time. It's true, I was born Rachel Gale Leventhal, but I massively improved my name by hyphenating it to become Rachel G. Leventhal Weiner. I hate it when I get Mrs. Weiner, so I insist people call me Dr. Leventhal Weiner or Rachel. There's never any confusion wherever I go about being a member of the tribe. Hope you're all healthy and safe, Rachel L.W. Now, there's two issues here that I want to bring up. The first is, since she's one of my wife's closest friends, I wonder, you know the way sweepstakes always have that little fast-talking bit at the end, like yeah. family and friends of this, you know, blah, blah, blah. People related may not apply. I wonder if we can accept a Rachel Leventhal-Weiner submission, given that she's mishpucha.
2: We give we give a hater. We give a permission. Excellent. Thank you. Now, let me
0: guess what your second issue is. You're going to take some issue with the spelling of her name. So, she did point out that her middle name is G-A-L-E. G-A-Y-L-E. And I feel like this has the potential to blow up in a saran wrap versus aluminum <laughs> foil way. The Gale with a Y, so I think of Gale as G-A-I-L. I would never name a kid Gale, to be perfectly frank, but if I were going to, it would be G-A-I-L. I feel as if G-A-Y-L-E is kind of throwing in a little bit of like, we're not your typical Gale. It's like sophistication. We're Gale with Y. So, yeah, it's like- I'm a continental Gale. It feels a little rootless, cosmopolitan, continental, dare I say, Jewy. And I'm curious what people think about it. I'm just gonna throw that out there to the J. Crew. What's up with Gail with a Y, okay? <laughs> is,
1: I've only known Jewish Gales. Are there non-Jewish Gales as well?
0: Gail Supanich, the uh, head of my Montessori elementary school. Not a, I mean,
1: how did I not know not that? Not a Jew. <laughs> not a Jew. How could I have forgotten about Gail? Gail
0: Supanich, definitely a Gentile.
2: And there's Gail King, of course, who is Gail with a Y-L-E. Ah, that's true. A fair
0: point. Oprah, best gal pal, Gail King.
2: And TV hostess in her own right.
0: Who, by the way, came up on WFSB in Hartford, the CBS affiliate of my childhood. childhood.
2: Do you know, by the way, why Oprah is named? Why she's named?
0: Yeah, they misspelled Orpah from Torah.
2: Right. Liel, do you
0: want to take the next letter?
2: Because it's about you. I would love to. And I I read it with a quivering voice because really, I I can't get into another one of these situations where I now have to devote my life to another sport. So (laughs) here goes. Dear unorthodox. I understand that Liel was 100% trying to bait me with that crack about how curling is stupid in the primary sources episode, but it worked. I moved to Minnesota for an academic job a while ago. And a few years later, some friends and I joined a league and started curling. I figured that it was as good a way as any to try to embrace living in this state. I don't know if he means the state of Minnesota or like some other kind of existential state like despair. Curling is an absolute blast, at least as long as you don't take yourself too seriously while you're playing it, which it helps that you're literally holding a broom. And really, I think it's also kind of jew Curling is the most brain-intensive, at least muscle-intensive sport that I've ever played. They even call curling chess on ice. And come on, is chess club suddenly only for Gentiles? If post-pandemic, any of you ever find yourself in Minnesota, please let me know. I'm still quite bad at curling, but I would be delighted to arrange a Learn to Curl event with any or all of you. Bring warm clothes, clean shoes, and a willingness to lose your dignity. David.
1: By the way, David is not the only Minnesota resident obsessed with curling. Molly Ye, who has spent a bunch of time at the Olympics, is obsessed with curling, as is my husband, Ben Cohen, because of the Garlic Girls at South Korea's women's curling team. They are amazing. They are like pop stars, memes. They're everything. I'm all about curling.
0: And you may remember former Gentile of the Week Andy Boone among his many obsessions, along with birding. Curling is high up there.
2: Guys, it's a broom. They're holding a broom. I mean, come on. Is there really no limits to what sport you're going to Make me watch next. you'll
1: yeah, give it a week. <laughs> you'll be obsessed with curling. Um, right. You know, it's funny because I like this idea of chess on ice because I fenced growing up. I fenced as a young person and in college and they called it physical chess. So I like that everyone's like, curling is chess on ice and we're like, fencing is physical chess. Like we all need to use like a modifier to explain our sport.
0: And I actually played Chess, which was just chess. There it was, was no chess. athletic component. Yeah. There was no athletic component whatsoever. It was just chess. You want to read the next one, Steph?
1: This note comes from Daniel Altman. He says, Dear Unorthodox, following up on the floor hockey discussion— I never want to end the floor hockey discussion, by the way, guys. No. And that the modern orthodox world has about two levels, if that, of separation. Like your producer, Sarah Fredman Ader, both of my daughters played hockey for the Mayanote Rapids. If you were looking for another floor hockey movie to be made besides your producer's story, there should be a deep dive in a movie of the greatest floor hockey scandal. When Ashiva's bus was delayed and certain members of the team went to White Castle wait, okay, we don't need two floor hockey movies. We need one movie. And this is like the three quarters over the way there. Move
0: over, Harold and Kumar. <laughs> Shady and S. D. go to White Castle.
1: It's like pitch perfect when their bus breaks down and they have to go, th- like, you know, I, I love it. <laughs> so the bus was delayed. And then pe- I want to know like what exactly happened, like where the bus was delayed at the school. Like, did they not make it in time? They, they went to White Castle, amazing.
0: I also want to say we got another letter about the floor hockey from a, a woman who called herself anonymous in Indiana who wanted to argue that when she was in a very non-Jewish part of New Jersey, uh, she was the only Jew in her elementary school. And as she wrote, we played floor hockey all the time. You are wrong that only Orthodox Jews have heard of floor hockey. But Anonymous in Indiana then says, however, when we got to high school, there was only field hockey and ice hockey. So... I want to clarify, since I was the one who said that only Orthodox Jews have heard of floor hockey, that only Orthodox Jews play it as a competitive high school varsity sport. It is true that lots of non-Orthodox Jews and, in fact, Gentiles swat each other around with a stick on a gym floor in gyms across America in elementary school. But I think the point is that for Orthodox Jews, you know, you might have lacrosse, ice hockey, softball, and floor hockey as high school varsity options. So I wanted to, to just clarify that. Field
1: hockey to me has always seemed just like very waspy, even though everyone in my high school was Jewish and played it. Yes,
0: it's very it's very prep school. Um, apropos of the thread on whether Jews should evangelize, we got this letter. Dear Unorthodox, Shabbat Shalom. On the January 14th podcast, you talked about whether there should be advertising for Judaism. I agree that Judaism has a lot to offer, and Judaism could really use better PR. I also agree that Mormon or Jehovah's Witness-style door-to-door missionaries is not the way to go. It would not only be unsafe, but off-brand. I disagree, but okay. It would definitely be off-brand. I'm not sure it'd be unsafe, but all right. But our letter writer writes, the more liberal Christian method of, can we share some coffee and talk, would be really awesome. I've been looking for that since I found myself surrounded by meaningful Judaism in college. I'm 41 now, and it's been a while. Where does a wannabe Jew by choice go for person-to-person interaction to see if Judaism is for her? This is why Judaism needs a coffee hour. Sincerely, an appreciative Gentile fan, Lucy.
1: I love this letter. It's like, we should be doing coffee clutches, not just with Jews, like with other people too, right? You should be able to try things on. I mean, I I understand why people who are converting, their rabbis tell them to listen to our show because they can at least- See what it's like, right? Like we have you, a
0: 30-day return policy.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we you don't need a receipt to return it. Like my grandma, she was at Costco the other day returning without a receipt.
0: It's a home sales thing. It's it's a Mary Kay cosmetics Tupperware
1: home party. Um, not Tupperware, but no, no. I think I think that's really really interesting. I will say though though. So I live in an apartment building in New York City. I've never actually gotten a, knock, a door knock from a Jehovah's Witness, but I did get a letter in the mail recently from a local Jehovah's Witness who said it's not safe to knock on doors. So I wanted to send you this note and just tell you some stuff. And I was like. This is great. I love a letter in the mail. This is really (laughs) cute. So we should just start sending letters to everyone on the Jewish names bracket, saying, "Can I interest you in this a coffee and maybe like a coffee cake, a little babka, a little rugula, rugalach, multiple?" Yeah, I like. I'm I'm getting
0: one over. I'm (laughs) I'm getting (laughs) one. (laughs) I'm getting one over. Back to the names thread. Dear unorthodox, here's my story: Sherry Schwartz from Montreal meets Murray Maltz from Winnipeg. They marry and move to Toronto. There's another Sherry Schwartz at work, so I become Sherry Schwartzmaltz. That's Schwartzmaltz, not Schmaltz. Why does everyone call me Schmaltz? Don't they know what that means? I'm a spokesperson for the school board. The other day, I was interviewed by a reporter, and he called me Sherry Schmaltz. And later, off camera, I had to tell him he just called me fat in front of all of Toronto. <laughs> Yours, <laughs> Sherry Schwartzmaltz. Schwartzmaltz.
1: <laughs> Wait, is, is Schmaltz a way of saying fat? Like, besides that it's chicken fat? No, it's, fat? it's literally it's fat. Just, it's just the yeah. noun Surrendered chicken just, fat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Schmaltzy is like a little like cheesy, corny over the top.
2: Schmaltzy is, but Schmaltz is literally just chicken
1: fat. Sherry Schmaltz, I'm
2: sorry. <laughs> Schwartz
1: <laughs> By the way, I would love to try some Schwartz Schmaltz.
2: Right.
0: Some Schwartz Schmaltz is the best in Toronto. And the the name voicemails kept coming. We got this voicemail. About 25 years ago, my daughter, when she was in elementary school, had a boy in her class named Aaron Wiener Blodner. And her younger brother, who was then in nursery school, decided this name was so funny that he began to use it as an epithet and call people that he was angry with saying, you, Aaron Wiener Blotner. Adding an entry to our Jewish name of the year contest that immediately leaps into the top seeds. And in fact, using Mr. Google, I discovered that Aaron Wiener Blotner appears to exist. He's a psychologist at University College London. If you have letters for us or voicemails, you can write to us at unorthodox at or call us 914-570-4869.
1: We are here today with David Byspiel. He's a poet, memoirist, and literary critic. He is the author of 11 books. The most recent one is called A Place of Exodus, Home, Memory, and Texas. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here.
2: David, I'm no stranger myself, having moved around quite a bit and left and returned both to places and to ideas and traditions. And so your book hit very close to home with me. It is incredible and so beautifully written. Before I even ask a question, I want to read a couple of sentences from fairly close to the beginning of the book. You write, to search your past is to organize a series of queries about yourself that allow you to discover which actions and events, what behaviors and decisions have led you to ask those very questions, each question begs another question. Your history gets unraveled. With it, the histories of the people you shared your past with. That is so well put. Tell us a little bit about the book, about your history. They're sometimes the same thing, sometimes interchangeable.
4: Tell us about your journey, about your exodus. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I really love the way you read that. He could do the audiobook. He <laughs> could do the audiobook. yeah. Well, I grew up in Houston in a neighborhood called Meyerland which is the historic Jewish neighborhood of Houston. If Meyerland was in Philip Roth's novels, it's the Wequayek of Houston. In this neighborhood were a conservative synagogue. That's the largest conservative synagogue in North America. It's something like 3,000 families. And down the bio from there, about three miles, is a reformed temple. That's the oldest congregation in Texas history. Across the bio from there is the Jewish Community Center, which was built in the late 60s. And that's like the size of Yankee Stadium. My family grew up almost dead center in that neighborhood. We moved there from Oklahoma in the late 60s. I went to the day school at the um, conservative synagogue, Beth Yashirn, at the shul there. I um, studied Torah and Talmud after my bar mitzvah up until I was a a late teenager. I probably spent every day at that Jewish Community Center, including youth groups and such like that. And so, you know, I grew up in the um, bosom of American Jewish life in the post-war. And then I um, left or was kicked out, depending on your perspective.
2: I I want to stop you there, because when you say kicked out, you're not really being facetious or or speaking in metaphors. Tell us about that seminal quarrel that got you (laughs) kicked out.
4: Well, it was years in the making, and um, I got my licks in for sure. But the senior rabbi of that congregation, you know, who'd been my rabbi since I was small, was not very um, flexible think. I think someone else who heard a student like me have my concerns of questions about faith, of navigating faith, not so much the rituals. The rituals were second skin, really, for me, because I'd been trained. And I came to a place where I thought, you're allowed to ask any question. You're trained to ask questions in this place, except for a couple of questions. And those were the questions that were most pressing to me. What is this? Why? What else is out there? I really, it really was the question. And in Texas, what else is out there was pressing. You know, though, when we grew up in Maryland, I think we thought Houston was 80% Jewish. Its population, it turns out we were wrong.
1: You ask your mom what Easter is, right, at one point, which you don't expect to happen in Texas.
4: No, no. She takes that to be her greatest achievement, having her uh, 11-year-old come into the house and ask her about who Jesus is. Anyway, the quarrel happened uh, in a Talmud class. There were some questions about some verses and things like that. And um, I didn't really want to reveal what I was thinking. The rabbi pressed me. I pressed back. You know, we were like um, Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty on the bridge. I mean, it was a fight to the death, really. And eventually, he just had it with me and kicked me out.
1: So what does that mean, kicked you out?
4: That was, leave the class, leave the shul, don't come back. He never called my family to talk about it. I was never invited back. He never sought a reconciliation. I certainly didn't. I was as much kicked out as I uninvited myself. And it gave me the freedom to pursue other ways of thinking, which I suppose may be the most Jewish act of all. So, in a way, I was relieved, but I also was somewhat crushed. You know, it was a triumph to win this argument with him. And it was um, a moment of shame. All of my friends, my litter mates that I had grown up with there, they all, for the most part, turned away from me. And then I, in turn, turned from them.
2: Now, how, how old are you when, when this is happening?
4: 17.
2: So, 17. Excommunicated. Virtually, you had no choice but to become a poet, right? I mean, it was for sure. At that point, you're like, well. It was a short leap. Yeah. Right. You're not becoming a lawyer or an accountant after this. So describe the great awakening to the world outside. And then some years later, the great return, which is really at the heart of, of this book.
4: I write about that journey in a book called The Education of a Young Poet. I left Texas. I went to college in Boston. There, I studied with Howard Zinn for instance and other people and I began to open myself up to the pleasures of American and British literature and began to write and so after i left college i moved to a small town in vermont of 43 people including myself and that's really where i began to write and i have manuscripts from that era where i was trying to write about this episode of my life even then in my 20s it was a lot sharper elbow the work i was doing in my 20s about this episode and i put it aside anyway I left there, I went to Washington DC, I left there, I went to San Francisco, I left there, I went to Portland, other places in between. So I was something of an itinerant writer for about 10 years. I've lived here in Portland since 1995.
1: You're saying all these places, you know, I just have this like, fr- you know, this idea of like the wandering Jew. I mean, you have the title Exodus in your book and I I wonder, I mean, how do you track your this itinerant journey as part of this almost like biblical Journey that you were on to sort of get to where you are today.
4: Well, like so many um, narratives in Genesis, in particular, they can be overlaid on almost any behavior in your life. I mean, that's one of the power of those narratives is they don't have a lot of details. You know, they're there to raise questions. Abraham and Isaac travel for three days for the um, sacrifice, the binding. But who do they talk to? Who do they meet? What's the landscape like? Uh, does anyone ask, "Hey, guys, where are you going?" <laughs>
1: Anything fun going on today? Little right.
4: father-son time, you know?
2: Or does Isaac ask, say that, you know, I couldn't help but noticing that we have no animals for the sacrifice here. You got any plants?
4: Yeah, but it took him three days to figure that out. Not very, you know, if maybe he'd gone to Hebrew school. <laughs> but the purpose of that kind of narrative is so you can fill it in. It's not so much for entertainment as it is for to pose questions. Well, what is your three-day journey? Or, if, you know, to take the New Testament, what is your 40 days in the desert? And so, it's a way you can apply that onto anything. So, yeah, I do think that I, you know, by calling it an Exodus, I'm calling attention to two Exodi. One is the Exodus from Egypt to Houston, the epigraph at the beginning of the book. These are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt that then went to Southwest Houston. So, it's a way of telling a continuation of that story. That's one use of the metaphor. And the other is, as you're asking, it's about my own exodus from a place and then um, returning in a fashion. I and mean, I think the return is somewhat bittersweet. Really, the place is damaged; it's been flooded. Houses are being torn down. You know that neighborhood suffered three, 500-year floods in three years. So, it's, one's memory is being changed. That's another exodus. You know, an internal exodus from who you were to who you become back to who you were and can those people be reunited?
2: And so not to force an answer that took several pages of very intricate and insightful and beautiful writing to to get to, but I do want to ask you to muse in this question a little bit because here you are returning not only to the physical space, but also to the kind of emotional, spiritual, theological grounds of Judaism that you sort of seriously you know, haunted as, as a young person, and, and you're mature now, you've lived a life. What does that ground look like to you when you come back? Is it recognizable? Are, are new passions arising? Are old passions rekindled?
4: One of the things I found most difficult or challenging or interesting in a writerly way in doing the book was having to re-inhabit, Myself at a time in my life in which I valued the things you just asked about differently than I do now, and that was real eyeball to eyeball in the mirror kind of work. My general feeling toward some aspects of that story is a kind of lingering hostility, and yet in writing the book, there's no way to redramatize that. You know, it's a simulation of events. It's a true story, and this is the dramatization of it. You know, Meyerland was a very protective tight-knit, warm, highly educated, valuing education, et cetera, et cetera, kind of community. What's not to like, right? So that was one challenge. Reacquainting myself with the nuances of scripture was another challenge. And that was interesting from a kind of linguistic position. And probably the thing which was most challenging was portraying my antagonist in his best way. You know what I mean? In my age now, I'm in my mid-50s. The rabbi who I had you know, this quarrel with, I'm quite sure I'm now older than he was then. So to your question you know, about quote-unquote maturity, I've lived longer at least than he had at the time, which gives me an emotional leverage over the material that I would not have had when I was younger. And so those three things in particular are stimulating and are also obstacles, but they've been very, very interesting and rewarding to work with.
2: I want to ask you one more question that is also very uh, tied to the theme of Exodus. It has to do with Texas. It seems to me that when a person is originally from say, you know, Michigan or Louisiana or really any other state in the nation, that's just kind of a biographical fact about them. That's just where they happen to be from. When a person is from Texas, that is the first thing that you know. It is a fact that will be reminded to you six or seven times in a conversation. That person seems to still be, at least a part of that person, still seems to be in Texas. Sometimes, you know, you guys wear boots. Sometimes, you know, you do that drawl thing, that Texas accent that you slip in and out of. Why is that? What is it about Texas that inspires that in people?
4: Well, Texas is a great place. I miss it terribly. You know, one of the things that makes... Texas Texas is its deep immersion and fetishization of its own mythology, which I suppose you could apply to any religion in the world. So in that sense, Texas is a, has mythologized itself into a, a religious feeling. One is Texan. One practices Texasisms. There's books of Texasisms. There's histories of Texas. Now, that history is fraught, to be sure, especially in terms of the treatment of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in Texas. I mean, it's a it's a very violent history. But it also is tied to something related to the American spirit, let's just call that, of a wildness, of a wide openness, of um, capitalism that is mythologized in The Cowboy, which we know is, you know, a made-up story, and also in The Wildcatter, people who uh, found oil in Texas. And in that sense, everything's bigger in Texas because Texans keep saying everything's bigger in Texas, and the imprint is amazing. Those of us who have left think of ourselves as expatriate Texans. Texas still believes that it could become its own country again. It's the only state in the union that was once its own republic. And um, a day without barbecue is a day without sunshine. You know, don't you agree?
2: Oh, a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. There seems to be something deeply, again, biblical about that mythologizing, and I wonder if you could probably map it onto a Christian story as well, but it maps onto yours really nicely. Is that something you've, you've thought about?
4: Yeah, and I think the book embodies that in a way. You know, the question you get all the time, or I get all the time, is uh, you let it out very early that you're from Texas, and the next thing people often say is, there are Jews in Texas? I didn't know there were Jews in Texas. And so the gigantic Christian ethos of Texas, you know, is hard to break through and for other, you know, religions to break out of. My friend Chris Wyman, who wrote this book, My Bride Best, says about West Texas, where he's from, to say where he was from in West Texas, that everybody was Christian, is to say that there's sand in the Sahara. And in Houston, you know, we were, were surrounded by that. Now, it's more integrated than it used to be, I suspect. I think one of the things that interests me is how this is a gigantic country and texas is a huge state and yet we're so big that you can still have big subgroups in them so you know the jewish community in myerland in southwest houston is gigantic compared to some other community the football living community or the golf community you know that's not exactly what you're asking in terms of spiritual life but that's one of the things that rewards people in a place like Texas is, well, these are Jewish Texans. These are Texas. These are Meyerland Jews, for instance. And they have their own identity and they pull Texas into that identity. You know, Boker Tov, y'all. Mm-hmm. Meyach, y'all. That sort of thing. And though that's all said in jest, it's also integrated into the culture.
2: And you also have the barbecue, which is, you know, quite literally the roast meats that were still remembered from the temple.
1: You know, it's funny you talk about how big this community is, but I keep thinking of it as so interconnected. I mean, you at the end of the book go back and you sort of try to make an unobtrusive visit, but you're you're recognized by your former day school teacher. And I was reading that name and I said, I know that name. Actually, that's the woman who, who got us to the JCC there for a live show. Yes, that's right. And so to me, it's so funny that I would be reading this book about what is technically a quite far away place and community and neighborhood, but the fact that i it was just such a funny thing where I was like, oh, I know her, of course. So, I mean, is that that sort of like small town feeling? I mean, that does seem really integral to the community there. And it probably shaped in response to the external community, right?
4: Yeah. Oh, totally. Let me tell you a story. I went home to do some work on the book and spent a week there, you know, just sort of taking notes on the landscape again. And, you know, the only way to really remember something is to put yourself in the space. And uh, the First or second day I was there, I go to a little diner, not far, you know, right in the neighborhood. And I walk in to get a bite to eat. And there's only three people in there. They're at one table, these three women. And one of them looks familiar to me, but I can't quite place her. But she definitely looks familiar. And she's looking at me as if I look familiar to her. And I order and I sit down and I'm you know making notes and you know doing my work. And um, she walks over to me and she says, David? <laughs> okay. And then as soon as she said it, I said, Andrea. And we said hello. And then she says, I want to introduce you to some friends. So I go over to to meet her friends. And she says, This is David Weispiel. He's here in Meyerland. He's working on a book about where we all grew up. And I just looked at her and went, How do you know this? And it it turned out that her sister, who is in the book, had told her that I was working on this book sometime before. So to your point, here I am just minding my own business, going into a diner in the third largest city in, in the country. But in this neighborhood, everyone's business is everybody's business.
2: Just when you thought you're out, they pull you back in.
1: And they know exactly what you're doing there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. You can't you can't steal a kiss in a town like that. David Beisbill, thank you so much. The new book is A Place of Exodus, Home, Memory, and Texas. And people should read it and see if they recognize any of the names in it. <laughs> Sounds like.
4: Thank you all so much. I appreciate it.
0: Mazel tovs. I think we know what the Mazel tov is this week. Stephanie Butnick, Liel Liebowitz. what is our Mazel tov this week? Our
2: Mazel tov this week is to our colleague, a tablet, Yair Rosenberg, and his wife, former unorthodox guest, Rachel Rosenthal, on the birth of their lovely daughter, Eva Laila. Eva, welcome to the mishpocha.
1: I also want to say, were they to choose to hyphenate for the child... Rosenthal Rosenberg would be on our list of top Jewish names. I love it so much.
2: Eva, Lila, Rosenberg, Rosenthal, Rosenstein, Rosenfeld, Schmaltz.
1: We're so (laughs) excited to meet you, and we can't wait till you get on Twitter.
0: Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts or entries for Jewish Name of the Millennium Contest to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast please go rate us on iTunes smite those bad ratings that we get and lift them up elevate them fellowship with us with a five star rating to book us or advertise with us email producer Josh Cross at jcross that's cross with a k at tabletmag.com for swag like onesies or mugs go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod join our Facebook group our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia, the little clown. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. And our theme music is by Golem online at GolemRocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. And our shotgun is Jordi Sode. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Elaine Zecher of Temple Israel of Boston. And we come to you again from the scattered, underground, fortified, nuclear war safe locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I tried to get through Middlemarch, which I know is Liel's, one of Liel's great faves. He's related to George Eliot and my wife's great fave. And I got about 350 pages into the 800-page book. And I put it down one day about a week ago and said, I get it. Yeah. I get it. It's enough.
2: I don't care what happens to him and his wife.
0: (laughs) I get the sort of, I get the gist. There's a lot of social comedy. There's interesting mores. If a woman doesn't make the right marriage, she's in trouble. The, uh, the local rector has to win the approval of the local robber barons in order to get his church position. I, I get it.
1: Are we still talking about Great Gatsby? <laughs> That's like
0: no more George Eliot for me. I'm done. I'm sad, sad, sad to hear that.